Hello, friends. We're continuing our study in the book of John this week. We have been studying the Gospel of John in light of the reason for why it is written. And the Gospel writer said that Jesus did many other miracles that were not included in this book, but these things were written that we might believe and have life in Jesus' name. I trust today that you've experienced that life that John is talking about in his gospel, even in the midst of COVID-19. As we have learned throughout John's gospel, this kind of life that John talks about is a life that can be characterized by abundant peace, abundant joy, and great hope, even in the midst of difficult and unusual times, such as the ones we're living in today. But we've also seen and we've also found that it is not a life that is free from sorrow or trouble. And when sorrow and trouble come, where do we turn? From where does our help come from? It's not a new question. It's a question that has been at the forefront of the minds of writers throughout the history of humanity. In fact, one of the psalmists wrote in Psalm 121, He pleaded, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? And he concluded in that same psalm, my help comes from the Lord. And then he explodes into praise for the God who keeps us. If you would want to turn to that psalm and read it, as you would read the psalm, what you would find is that in eight verses, you would find that word keep six verses separate times. He is a God who keeps his people. But what does this look like that God keeps us? How does he do it? And for the first time in hundreds of years, the disciples were experiencing daily what life looked like in the presence of God as Jesus was walking together with them on the earth. God in flesh And their time with Jesus may not have always been easy. It certainly wasn't free from trouble or sorrow, but they were getting to live daily in his physical presence. And we are in Jesus's farewell discourse in this portion of John that we're studying today. And Jesus is saying farewell to his disciples. And they're devastated. They're hurt. There's sorrow. There's trouble. Church, there's going to be physical separation for a time. Jesus had hinted about this all along the way as he was teaching them and preparing them. But as it so often goes, we fail to consider what life might look like after the fact. How does one experience the Lord as their keeper when their Lord is no longer physically present with them? Who would guide? Who would bring comfort? Who would bring joy? Who would be the new one to lead the people of God, Jesus' disciples? And even further, could this new leader, this new helper, could he be trusted in the same way that Jesus was trusted? For us today, church, who is leading, who's guiding, directing, convicting, declaring truths to our hearts and our minds? 
At at home today, as you join with us in this service, you may be sitting and saying, "I, I think I know the answer to that. So perhaps the greater question today is, do we trust him? Do we trust him? And does our life demonstrate that trust? We're in John chapter 16 today. We're starting at the second half of verse 4, and we're going to read all the way to verse 15 today. And before we unpack the answers to these questions, let's ask our helper to guide our time today. Holy Spirit, we gather around your word. It is the word of God. It is the word that Jesus spoke the very word that God gave him while he was here on earth. And here we gather around it, knowing that it is full of truth for us in the exact spot that we sit today. Lord, your spirit is not surprised by the accounts that we face today in our lives. The circumstances and the situations that we gather together under today Lord, you've prepared them beforehand for us to walk in. There's a purpose. There's a reason. And we celebrate today, God, that the truth of your word teaches us that you did not leave us to do this alone. But you've given us a helper. One who dwells with us. Who is always with us. Leading guiding, directing, convicting. And so, Lord, we ask that helper now. Holy Spirit, we ask you to convict our hearts today. Change our minds. Cause us to grow. Help us to love. Help us to learn. We're so thankful for Jesus and his sacrifice. Thank you for the time we have around the word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 16, starting in verse 4. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine And declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine 
and declare it to you. This morning, friends, it's important for us to realize that there is advantageous sorrow. That sorrow that we face here in this life can be to our advantage. Jesus hadn't troubled his disciples with his future departure early in his ministry because his desire was for them to stay focused on the task at hand. But now Jesus' hour was at hand and he was on his way back to the Father. And Jesus makes a curious statement here in the text at the end of verse 5. Take a look at it with me. The end of verse 5, he says, None of you asks me where you are going. Now, when we look back at the context of this passage, taken together with the rest of John's gospel, there's a few questions that we might ask ourselves. Didn't Peter ask Jesus that very question? In John chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And Thomas, again, in chapter 14, the very next chapter, verse 5, he says, Lord, we do not know where you were going. How can we know the way? Did Jesus have selective hearing? I don't think so. As I was thinking through this this week, I was thinking, what is going on here? What is Jesus trying to demonstrate to his disciples? And as I thought about it, I I really could only think of one way to illustrate it. And I, I believe we can all remember a time, perhaps when we were young, in our homes, when we were playing, we were having a great time, perhaps with our mom and dad. And, and fun was abounding. There was energy, there was joy, there was laughter. We were in a moment that we never wanted to end. But then, dad got called away. And it isn't interesting when that happens that one of the children will always ask the question, Where are you going? Dad, where are you going? We're, we're having fun. This is great. For me, usually the answer is to some sort of meeting at our church's building. And it's interesting when they ask that question, their intention is not so that they can follow me to where I'm going. I think they have very little interest in following me to where I'm going when they know that I'm leaving. But more so, it's to protest and express their disapproval that our fun time together is now over. Their motivation isn't so that they might follow, but more so, so that their fun does not come to an end. It's hard for them to understand in the moment what is happening. Why would dad leave? This is so much fun. We're having a great time. Who are these people he's going to meet? They can't be more fun than we are. But their focus is a bit off. And I believe the disciples in the moment when they're asking Jesus that question in John 13 and 14, if we look at the context, what we see is that their focus is a bit off. On their current circumstances, but not on the realities of why Jesus had to go. Peter asks in John 13, seemingly because he desires to demonstrate his own self-righteousness. Remember what he said right after? I will follow you anywhere. Jesus, look at me. Look at how righteous I am. Thomas, 
he's kind of a literalist. If you remember, he's the doubter. He he actually, I think, wanted the directions to the location where Jesus was going. And that prompted Jesus to make one of the great I am statements of all of John's gospel. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. See, Jesus is revealing to his disciples here in John 16 that they are not asking the question with the right motivation and intention. Calvin, the great theologian, expresses it this way, quote, in asking, they did not lift up their minds to trust as they should above all have done. And this was the chief duty that they were bound to perform. And so the meaning is, as soon as you hear of my departure, you become alarmed and do not consider why or for what purpose I go. End quote. If the disciples would have understood properly, Peter and Thomas in that moment, they would have asked with the proper motivation and intention, and they would not have only been left with sorrow but they also would have had great hope. What is missing is their hope. Look at verse 6. Jesus follows verse 5 with the statement in verse 6, demonstrating that their hope is missing. Verse 6 says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And friends, I would say to us today that the absence of hope in our sorrow could be an indicator that we may not have rightly understood or believed on the words of Jesus. As we sit at home today, I could probably guess that most of us in our living rooms, on our couches, have experienced some sort of sorrow through this time of being separated one from another And there will be more sorrow to come. But what I have been overwhelmingly encouraged by is the resiliency and fierce courage of the church. I've encountered very little sorrow with the absence of hope. And that encourages my heart. Because the sorrow we experience on this earth can be used for God's glory And for our advantage, the church is still functioning, friends. It's been amazing to see all that is going on all over the place. People are making meals, taking meals, running errands for elderly congregants, helping people set up technology and get connected, inviting people safely into their homes who do not have technology so they can participate in services. I've seen and have heard testimony of fathers giving communion in their home for the very first time to their wife and their children. I've heard of great spiritual growth and discipleship in the lives of children as families have interacted in their homes around the scriptures together in these intimate ways. Friends, the church is stronger. We're stronger. We do have sorrow for the lack of physical gathering and what that once felt like. But there will be a time for that again. Hold on to that hope. Look at here in the text where Jesus is directing his disciples' minds and hearts in verse 7. 
He's preparing them for their future hope in their sorrow. He's going to deliver truth. Look at what he says in verse seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Sometimes our sorrow is advantageous because through the ashes of pain and difficulty, Jesus comes, lifts us back up onto our feet, brushes us off, and moves us one step forward to where he's calling us to. Our sorrow and our pain can be heavy, but Jesus is greater, friends. And just like Jesus had something advantageous for his disciples in the midst of their sorrow, our minds can be directed to remember that the same gift he sent to them, he's given to those who believe. Church, grab hold of this truth in this difficult season. The helper has been sent and lives within each one of us. He's a guarantee of our future inheritance. Look at these wonderful verses. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Second Corinthians chapter one, 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee So often when we experience sorrow here in this temporary stopping place of earth, we find that our mourning can turn to joy when our thoughts and our eyes and our hearts are directed upward. The Spirit indwells us, promising us that this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And the helper, friends, is our guarantee of this future inheritance, one that's uncorrupted and unfading. So perhaps today, a great question would be, how does the helper help us? What is he doing? What are his functions And further, can we actually trust that he will do it? And do our lives reflect that we believe it? Jesus, in the next few verses here, is going to unpack four functions of the Holy Spirit that we can believe he is absolutely performing while he ministers here on earth today. Let's take a look at verses 8 to 11 of our text. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. 
concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Friends, the first function of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit brings conviction. And I think conviction is a very interesting word. It's a word we need to be careful with. It's a word that um, has some kind of connotation of being bad. We have been taught to equate conviction sometimes with shame. And I would like to argue, friends, that conviction is actually a good and hopeful function of the Holy Spirit. Conviction is internal evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in our life. It's evidence that God is with us and God is working. And the word actually means to bring to light or to expose. And it's interesting who John says the Holy Spirit will convict. It's evidence for us that the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of those who have not yet believed. Who does John say the Holy Spirit will convict? The world. And what will he bring to light? What is he convicting the world of? There are three realities that the Holy Spirit is bringing to light or exposing in his ministry of conviction. Take a look at the text. You can underline them. Concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Now, this is really beautiful what John is doing here, and and it's important we see how he's working this together. The Holy Spirit is convicting concerning sin because they do not believe in Jesus. So the primary sin that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of is the sin of unbelief. How are we drawn into a relationship with the Father? We are drawn when the Holy Spirit begins convicting us of our sin of unbelief. Then, following our salvation in the work of sanctification, the Holy Spirit continues to convict us of our unbelief. For us, church, it's the things in our lives that we say we believe, but we do not practice. It's the places in our lives where the patterns and behaviors of the way that we live are not lining up to the things that we say we believe. It's in those places where the sin of unbelief is still present in our lives. So what happens is that there becomes areas of our lives where we're not declaring the realities of what we say we believe. And the Spirit is convicting us. He's causing us to change. He's bringing into line our words and actions. Friends, many of us experienced this in the midst of COVID-19 when we were told we had to shelter in place in our homes. Our belief in who and what the church is and was was challenged. Could the church still function as the church outside of one physical building? And friends, the answer is a resounding yes. And some of you have shared testimony with me over this season of how your understanding of the church has grown and you've come to appreciate the church in much deeper way than before all of this because you're now seeing the church functioning and thriving in different environments and different places. 
For some of you, this was a challenge. This was hard because for much of our lives, for whatever reason, by the way that we talk and the way that we think, we're, we're taught to believe that church is something that only happens inside of a place we go in a building once a week. But now we've been forced by our behaviors and by our actions to actually align with what the Bible teaches the church to be a people, not a place. And so our sin of unbelief is one area of conviction, but the Spirit is also not just convicting the world of sin, He's convicting us of righteousness. What is right? Namely, that Jesus is Lord. Look at verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So conviction doesn't just correlate to sin. It does not just teach us about what is wrong. But conviction also teaches us what is right. I think that's interesting. You know, we... We come to places in our lives where, and many of you can point out a place where you've heard something your whole life, but then all of a sudden you hear it in a way you've never heard it before. And now you believe it with such conviction that the patterns and the behaviors of your life are changed forever. And you begin to think and behave differently because something that was once a belief has now turned into a conviction. The spirit has moved us teaching us what is right. Then finally, there's conviction concerning judgment. Now, there's something amazing again here that, that's happening in the text, and, and I think you're really going to love what John's doing here. Look at the wording closely, very closely with me at the end of verse 11. This is not a typo. Look at what it says. Because the ruler of this world is, not will be, is, judged. If you underline that word judged, what you can write next to it are these words. You can write perfect tense. Perfect tense. This is the tense of a verb that was used for an action that was completed once in the past, once and for all, never needing to be repeated again. It is the same tense of verb that Jesus used on the cross when he was hanging and he yelled, it is finished. Once and for all, the atonement had been accomplished. A sacrifice never to be needed again. Church, how hopeful was this to us? That the Holy Spirit will convict us concerning the judgment of Satan. It should be hopeful for us today, right now. We look around and especially in these days, our headlines are filled with disease and death. It seems like it's all we can see. We can't get away from it. You open a newspaper, you turn on a TV, you go onto the internet, to any news site or anything like that, all we see is death, disease, death, disease. The realities of sin and death are ever before us. And what is helpful and hopeful for us to remember is that the perpetrator behind these realities is already judged. His time may not be over in our eyes and our experience, 
But in view of eternity, his judgment is complete. It is set. Here is conviction that we can all unite around as believers, church. When we wonder what conviction looks like in our lives, what we can unite around in regards to conviction, something we can move forward together with, I believe this statement is one that's hopeful and true for the church today. These are convictions that we can all share. I have a terrible problem with sin, and soon I will be dead. But thanks be to Jesus who saved me from my two great problems of sin and death, rescuing, restoring, and raising me up together with him. He has rendered my enemy ineffective through his righteous judgment. Incredibly hopeful, friends, this function of conviction from the Holy Spirit, bringing us to light from darkness, exposing both our great problems and our solution to those problems and assuring us of our eternal victory over the enemy. But this is not the only function of the Spirit. This is a great one, but it's not the only one here. There's three more in our text. And so conviction is the first function. And let's look at the second function found in verse 13. The Holy Spirit is guiding in truth. Let's start in verse 12 and read halfway through verse 13. I have said many things to say to you. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Church, another function of the Holy Spirit is to guide disciples of Jesus into all truth. We need truth in these days. We need it. Difficult days. Headlines coming in every direction. Political battles brewing even in our own state and counties. Social media battles being waged. Voices coming from every which way. Emotions running rampant. Conspiracy theories abound and we are to be people of truth. Friends, we won't find the truth in the headlines. We won't find it in the social media stories in our news feed. We're not going to find it in the political ads or in the news outlets. The Spirit guides us in all truth and it is truth that comes from the word of God. Our safest and our surest place to search for truth. And let's not leave any doubt about it. God's word has plenty of truth, boundless truth for us to grab hold of in these days. We need no other truth than what is in God's word for the days we live in today. What a time for us to lean into Jesus' wisdom and not our own. To demonstrate that we care more about Jesus' words. We care more about what the word of God says than what any other headline or news source says to us. At the end of this, friends, there is going to be no way in this situation to please everyone. Jesus doesn't ask us 
to please everyone. Jesus calls us to love him and to love the people that he's directed into our pathways. And I'm reminded of of what this love looks like almost daily. Patient, kind, not boastful, not envious, looking to the best interests of others, laying down our lives for one another. Church, this is truth we need today. And if the Bible is our bright and shining lighthouse of truth, then the Spirit is our compass, leading us through the waves and rocks to safely guide us home. We can trust His wisdom and guidance because of what we see at the end of verse 13. The end of verse 13 teaches us a third function, and it gives us reason to believe that this helper is trustworthy. Look at the end of verse 13. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Church, the Spirit does not speak on His own authority. And if it sounds familiar, if that phrase sounds familiar to you, it's because it's the same phrase that Jesus used of Himself in John chapter 12. Look at what He said. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And as Jesus spoke on the Father's authority, so too does the Spirit speak on the Father's authority. Their words, their guidance, their wisdom, their direction, it can be counted on as thoroughly trustworthy. As the Holy Spirit hears from the Father, so He speaks through His Word to the church. And once again, this is such a beautiful picture in John 16 of all three persons of the Trinity working together to accomplish God's purposes in salvation. It is an act of God to declare things that are to come. This is a major theme in the book of Isaiah. If you read through the book of Isaiah, you will see that our God is a God who declares the things that are to come. And so when the Spirit is given the attribute of declaring things that are to come, He is given an attribute that is shared by God the Father Himself. Look at Isaiah chapter 44 Verse 7, and I put many other references in your note guides this week in Isaiah that you can read on your own, but this is just one from Isaiah chapter 44. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. The Spirit's declarations of truth, the things that are to come are great buttresses and pillars of hope for us in uncertain days. It's the spirit that reminds us of the precious truth that eternity is in the hands of our Father. And our God, church, is a covenant-keeping, faithful God. He keeps His promises even when all hope seems lost. The God of creation is able, no matter the circumstance or situation. And what is to come for us is far better 
than we are experiencing in these days right here, right now on earth. All of these functions of the Holy Spirit, convicting, guiding in truth, declaring things that are to come. We see all of these functions working in the lives of the disciples throughout the rest of the New Testament. These aren't just words Jesus said, but these were realities that actually happened in the lives of the disciples. Clear evidence that what Jesus said would happen, happened exactly as he said it would. The disciples, these were men of conviction. They were professors of truth. And as led by the Holy Spirit, carried carried along by his guidance, they wrote the Holy Scriptures. And in so doing, they gave the church a clear picture of the Spirit declaring the things that are to come. And here we are, here, here we are today, church, in our homes, on our couches, experiencing church online, something that many of us never thought we would ever be doing, most likely. Everything has changed. But really... Nothing has changed. The Spirit is still convicting. He is still guiding us in truth. And through the power of His Word, He is still declaring to us, His church, the things that are to come. And all of this, so that He might glorify Jesus. And in glorifying Jesus, He would glorify the Father. Look down at the final function of the Spirit in our text today in verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is what the Spirit does. He takes the truth that belongs to Jesus and he declares that truth to the people of God, the church, And in doing so, he glorifies the Son and the Father. It's beautiful functions of the Spirit in our text today. So how might our lives look in light of these realities? And I want to take a deep breath, church. This is an unprecedented time in the history, really, of our nation. There has never been a time where we've had so much technology that we would be able to adapt and pivot so quickly when a pandemic like this disrupts so abruptly the day-to-day flow of our lives. As we sit at home and we worship together today, I want to share with you that when the time comes for our building to reopen and for us to regather as a body, that initially things will look very different. They will feel different. I believe that there will be lamenting. I believe that there will be mourning. And friends, Quite honestly, it will be justified. What we are going to face together as a church 
in probably the next 12 to 24 months is going to be the biggest test of our faith that most of us have ever faced in a corporate congregational setting. We are going to have to demonstrate love and compassion and grace in ways that we never thought or imagined. Over the course of the next few weeks and months, you will be receiving much communication from our elders, from our leaders, concerning what the future of reopening our building might look like. I believe that some of this communication will be difficult. When the building first reopens again and we slowly begin to regather, it will have to be done very cautiously. Many of you may not feel safe coming, and I want you to know that is okay. There will be elders, there will be pastors, there will be staff that will be worshiping from home with their families through the entirety of this season. We need the Spirit's guidance and wisdom and truth and direction every step of the way as we move forward together. If you desire to come back to our building to worship together corporately once it's reopened early on, I need you to know that it will not look or feel like it did before COVID-19. We are going to be living in realities of what large gatherings look like post-COVID-19. There will be social distancing. There will be masks for a period There will be attendance that needs to be taken for a season. There will probably not be live congregational singing. There will be little fellowship, most likely no handshakes or hugs early on, no food being served. These are difficult realities, friends, but it's so important that we prepare for them now and that we right now determine together to grab hold of the truth that our joy comes from the Lord. It's not in the circumstances. It's not in what our building looks like. It's not in how things feel when we regather. But there's joy in the spirit of the Lord And what we want you to know, what we need you to know this morning with all of our hearts is that the greatest thing that we endeavor to do in this season as pastors and as elders of Calvary Monument Bible Church is to honor God and to love you. And we know, I know, (laughs) I texted a friend the other day, I said, I've never been in a situation where my inadequacies and inabilities of a leader were ever before me. But this is it. I am too weak to lead in this situation. Our elders are too weak to lead in this situation. We are all too weak to overcome the realities and circumstances of this situation. But you know what? He is not. 
And you know what is beautiful about all of this? Is that now we get to see how the strength of God is made perfect in our weakness. We're going to get to see it, friends. I don't know how. I can't understand how it's going to look. But we're going to experience joy together again. It may look different. But we'll experience it. We're going to experience celebrating the goodness of our God together again at some point. I don't know when, but it'll happen. And we're going to walk carefully and cautiously towards wherever Jesus is calling us. And we're going to do it with our eyes and our minds set on the things above in view of eternity with the hope and the knowledge that there will be a time, hopefully soon, when things feel like they did before COVID-19. Laser focus, friends. I have that. I write that on my calendar every single month. Laser focus. And not laser focus on the things of this world the circumstances and the situations that we live in today that are ever-changing, but laser focus on the Creator and on the Spirit of the living God who's going to lead us, convict us, declare truth to us, guide us, direct us, protect us, and keep us through this season together. We're in this together, friends. We're all new at this together. And so we're asking for your compassion and for your grace and for your love in this season as we move forward carefully into these brand new horizons. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much that we do not know in this time. But we know this that we are a people in desperate need of you. Your wisdom, your guidance. And we are so thankful today that we can encounter a text of scripture that promises us that you've given us a helper who is effective and functioning in our lives. And now more than ever, Lord, we lean into you knowing that it's going to be his conviction. It's going to be his guiding, his direction, his wisdom, your wisdom that we're going to need as we lead together in these circumstances today. Lord, we want to be a church whose testimony shines in light of our response to these circumstances We want to be a church that magnifies the greatness of you even in difficult days. We don't want to be a church that's defined by blaming, complaining, or making excuses. But we want to be a church that's defined by gratitude and by love and by a desire to honor you and honor those you place in our pathways. But Lord, today we acknowledge that this is the greatest battle that many of us maybe ever faced. And we need your spirit. And we're so thankful that you've given him to us. That we have him in abundance. And Father, I pray that his ways would lead. And his ways would become like our ways. As we move forward together. Help us do this. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you next week.